0: Welcome to Drinking with Visionaries, a podcast where we have nightcaps with daydreamers. My name is Trace Brady and I will be your host. For this next episode, we'll be joined by at Darber Dawn. Darby is an actress, writer, singer, and a self-proclaimed high priestess of hot girl shit. She is currently working on a book of poetry and finishing her first novel. And so without further ado, I present Drinking with Visionaries, episode 10. Darby, what's on your mind these days? Uh,
1: Excuse me. Um. Well, today's been good. It's storming. I'm sure you'll be able to hear like the thunder probably a little bit in the audio, but it's nice. It feels really good. I'm just in my garage drinking beer, smoking cigarettes and talking to you. It's good stuff.
0: Hey, love to see it. What else?
1: So you asked like, what are the problems that I want to fix in society? And I was like, okay, we'll just start with the big guns. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to solve the sex wars.
0: Ooh, okay, tell me more.
1: Yeah, I I don't know if that's like a real term or if that's just what Ken and I call it. Ken is like my best friend and he got me into this like corner of Twitter because um, he got into it and then he just kept sending me tweets all the time and so I ended up just like making a Twitter and and or using my old Twitter for once and getting into it and I feel like I just, I look at like where we're at like post I feel like we are kind of heading into what will be considered like a post world like third wave feminism I feel like the wave is crested and now the the tide is sort of drawing back towards the ocean I feel like we're what'll be integrated from this wave of feminism is sort of being integrated and then the rest of it will sort of fade away and it will be like just sort of like an over and done with thing we don't have to talk about anymore and when I think about I sort of grew up in like a I have what I would consider a feminist background Mm -hmm. In the sense that I was very involved in feminism, I guess, from being, like, a teenager into being, like, a young adult, like, college student or whatever. And I'm not not in it now, I guess, but I have some critiques, uh, and I have some, uh, like, qualms with it, and I'm, like, grappling with those kind of every day, and part of that was I met a bunch of guys who I feel like were sort of harmed by it, and, and... I want my ideology, not that I consider myself like a subscriber, necessarily to, cause like, what is an ideology? Like what's the, ten, what are the tenets of what it means? Like nobody knows, right? Ideas have people, people don't have ideas, you know? So it's one of those things where I I want to be able to answer for like the harm that it's caused. And I want to be able to like, I don't ever like to hold an idea that I'm not consistently critiquing consistently like thinking about like, what does it mean? You know what I mean? I, I always want to be, none of my ideas are unquestionable. Right. And I, I hold feminism to that standard. Cause I think if it's good enough, it can withstand some critiquing, you know? So that's sort of where I'm at. That's what I'd like to do.
0: <laughs> what would you say your, your current qualms are and what do you plan to do about them?
1: So I feel like I look at third wave feminism and what it, Sought out to accomplish, or and maybe did, maybe didn't. I don't know, depending on what you believe or whatever. Was sort of when you look at like second wave feminism, right? It's like women should be able to have checking accounts, right? <laughs> so how do you fix that? Well, you get people to make that okay. You get the banks and the the laws and the whatever. You can write down laws that say women shouldn't be discriminated against for hiring. Women should be able to have maternity leave. Women should be able to open a credit like a you know get a credit card without a man's signature, right? These things are. You know you can write them down and make them so Mm
2: -hmm.
1: third wave feminism is really i think attempted to you know follow up with some of those fronts you know like to get better maternity leave and and things like that but also it's really more i think about winning the hearts and minds of the public Mm. which is a much hairier goal that's a much harder thing to do right it's sort of the same thing that i think about this current civil rights movement we're going in right now well it's like you can't right right now you can't on the books discriminate against someone based on race due to hiring right but you can do things like subconsciously because of like the way that we've been you know raised in a society that has you know got some racism baked into it you can do things that are shitty to people of color based on this right so we're not about excuse me i drink beer and i just start burping it's all it's all bad (laughs) so you at this point it's really more about <clears throat> trying to to solve the hearts and minds of the public and i feel like the weapon that's usually used especially by feminists about this is guilt. Mm-hmm. It's uh and i think that's a really really piss poor way to go about it because people don't resp- some the shame then you got to make a you sort of got a dichotomy here between like the shamed the, the people who can be shamed and the shameless. The shameless don't give a shit. No matter how well you put your arguments, you know, these people just don't care. Like the people that we know that are like nationalists like actual fascists like they don't give a shit what you say to them about like women and their rights right but the people that can be shamed take this and internalize this guilt in a way that's like probably not good for them or in a way that you would hope they would be able to just take it kind of understand it and then like move on from it not internalize it not let it hurt them but it, it tends to you know and i look at a lot of my dude friends who are like feel like they've been harmed by feminism it's because they are these kind of like i don't want to use the term soft boy but they're they're like boys who are not super aggressive and you know not super classically masculine i guess you might say or whatever and they take this stuff and it like really hurts them and i i want that to not be the case i want i want feminism to be like a safe space for everybody and i want everybody to be able to fly that flag feeling really good about it you know and i I feel like I get in trouble sometimes on Twitter because I will... I did a thread once talking about, like, what I said, like, I feel like the wave of feminism sort of crested and, like, gone back. And I was foolish enough to tack on this one tweet at the end where I said, you know, I think the extremism is sort of behind us. And I said, you know, and, and really, I think a lot of the man-hating was really more of an in-group joke than anything. And that tweet, that one little side tweet on this long thread, got my ass in so much trouble. I mean, I got flamed for that. and i do feel like what i said was true but uh everybody jumped on it and they were like okay well if feminists can police turfs out of their spaces then why can't they police man haters and i was like fuck that's a really good question you know that's a really good question and i i feel like probably it's because there's sort of feminism is going to be out for women first that's just it's, it's like in the you know definition there it's in the term but uh Also, you know, I feel like there's a thing where women, we're just more sympathetic to women who have been brutalized by men. So if those women are working through their trauma by being like a man hater, it's probably what it is. Also, you know, if it's like uh, something Elota said the other day. He said like, fuck, what was it? He was like, you know, it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, if you've just left the church and maybe you don't feel like you really hate the church, it still feels good to kind of hear people be like, fuck the church, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that, where I think it's, you know, it's not ideal, but it is the way that people deal with things, it's sort of a human bug. But uh, I don't remember what question was I answering? How we want to fit? Oh, what my qualms are. Yeah. And so I, I look at my male friends and I, I want to have a better answer for them. Hmm. And I feel like feminism can do that if it will. If we'd all, all of us, not just feminists, but if we'd all stop playing America's next top victim. I want to believe that my ideas that the like the ideologies or whatever that I subscribe to can be like heartier than that, that they can make you a better, stronger person rather than making you a person who just like, well, because something bad happened to me, I get more right, you know, I want to believe that you can take these things and that they can be sort of like, buttressing rather than like, pulling you down. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. This is, oh, God, this is all gonna get me canceled. It's fine. Fuck them. Sorry.
0: So, you talked about guilt not being the answer what do you think needs to take its place I mean other than the broad understanding and I don't know how would you go about that
1: so for me I don't think I have a single female relative or like mentor or whatever that would call themselves a feminist that being said they're all terrifying women Mm -hmm. that scare the shit out of me to this day you know And I look at them in the way that they live their lives. And, and I always say that my mother is like a sort of Nietzschean hero because she doesn't do anything because it subscribes to like a belief or like a political ideology. She just doesn't care, Hmm. but she's also just like completely punk rock and has like no idea. She was like, I'm it's 1982 and I want to have a family and I want to have a job and I'm never going to depend on anybody for anything. So whatever. And I'm like, mom, are you a feminist? And she's like, no, (laughs) you know what I mean? And it's super funny but i want that kind of spirit to be imbued in into like feminism i want people to look at feminists or whatever and or whatever ideology any member of any ideology and say believing that looks like it helped you looks like it made you a better stronger person maybe i should get into that maybe these tenets could help me too right sort of like a self help thing because you know i uh I didn't need any help being like psychotic or feeling like I was comfortable being, you know, like loud or boisterous or whatever. I just kind of came into the world that way, but i realized that it was really hard for other people to accept that because I am a lot, (laughs) but I want, I want people to, instead of feeling guilty, I want them to look at. I do think the idea of being critical of the media that we see and the ideas that are sort of imposed on us from our society or whatever, I like the idea of staying critical of that because that's good. Any good idea can withstand some critique, right? So I'm, I'm into that. What I don't want is for me to look at you and be like, well, because you've had XYZ, you need to treat me differently, right? I want you to, say, I, I want you to look at me and say, because you've gone through XYZ, like that's cool. Hmm. That doesn't make any sense I mean in the sense that I would like for the people to be understanding But I don't want you to feel guilty (laughs) Of like the crimes that I've suffered at men's hands Because that's not your fault And if you did something to me I would like to be the type of person I mean I am But I would like for other people to be this way too To like react to you In a way that holds you accountable And if the law won't do it Well I'm going to do it In whatever way I know how right And also there's this I do think we do need like that's one of the good things that I think did come from the me too movement is sort of like the idea that there are systems in place that fail and when they fail there's like a huge human cost excuse me that I think is something that hopefully we can walk away and be like we need to build systems that if they're going to do something they need to do something Mm -hmm. I feel like I just ramble and you just like take it so nicely
0: well, hey, I enjoy hearing everybody's thoughts. So uh, just by staying yeah. curious, you know, it flows well. But, what about um, you?
1: Do you feel like you were ever harmed by feminism?
0: No. Um, <laughs>
1: Hold <on>. Good.
0: <laughs> well, I, I wrote a thread a couple of weeks ago just because I was already having this conversation with somebody in the DMs. And mm-hmm. she personally asked me to turn it into a thread because she thought, that perspective needs to be heard more often. So, just at her prompting, I was like, "Okay, I'll, I'll post it." And it didn't get any traction or anything, but that's okay because I didn't do it for
1: yeah, it's not what we're here for or
0: anything. You know, I just thought right. it was something that needed to be said. And the whole reason that came about was she was talking about a mentor of hers that was advising her not to focus solely on women because women organizations tend to be underfunded. Mm-hmm. And as a result, she couldn't charge as much or, or charge what she was worth just by going to these women organizations and speaking or doing workshops or whatever. So he was he was saying, you have to, if you want to you know, go further, you have to tailor to both men and women. And she asked me what my thoughts on this were because she was talking to somebody else in her life and said uh, something along the lines of, men aren't pissed off about feminism, they're pissed off about being left out of the conversation about feminism because because so so often uh, in these corporations, they'll pull the women aside and only speak to them and the men are feeling left out. And I had an issue with that because I thought you couldn't be pissed off about the conversation Le- being left out of the conversation without also being against fib- feminism because mm-hmm. in the short term favoring women <clears throat> is what correcting that imbalance looks like. So, I agree with you
1: actually yeah on that.
0: So That's interesting. You know like I I understand where the mentor uh, of hers is coming from
1: mm-hmm.
0: but but I told her that I think he's framing the problem all wrong. It wasn't anything yeah. to do with money. It wasn't anything to do with Oh, I wanna uplift women, so I need to focus solely on them and, and I won't be able to make as much money doing that, and I'll have a hard time, you know, being as successful. I thought that was all wrong. Like it has nothing to do with the money. And right. it has, has everything to do with this problem of, of power inequality is a right. double is a double sided problem. Mm-hmm. It's not just that we need to uplift women, it's that we need to correct all of the problems around rape culture and corporate culture. Right. So by only focusing on one half of the problem you're not being nearly as effective as you could be if you focus on both
1: right i absolutely agree with you oh
0: so i told her i think the mentor is right he just did not have the right reasoning behind it right she's way beyond me in in terms of her career so Uh i'm not like i'm not in any way like mentoring her it's the other way around but I was like, if you want my advice on this particular topic, I think you should go general and speak to both men and women.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: because if you don't, then you're kind of like on crutches. you're you're only gonna be right. limping along. And I told her, if anything, it's probably more beneficial to correct the problems with men than it is to uplift women because women are amazing as they are anyway and given the space to shine, they're gonna do so with flying colors. They don't, right. need any, they don't need any help in that area. I mean, they they might need, you know, broadly speaking, help with standing up for themselves and speaking up when they need to, because that's built into our culture too. Like right. we, we teach but It's when- built into
1: our biology. It's harder for us to hear high-pitched voices than it is for us to hear low-pitched voices. Do you know that? Fun fact, We learned I mean, that the other day.
0: I, okay, let's break that down for a second. I know Theodore Roosevelt in particular would speak in a higher register because it's somewhere in the middle. You know, like if you are speaking with a really deep voice, that's not going to go very far either. And neither neither is the super high voices. So it's somewhere in the middle. You know, I know orators in general from what I've studied and read in the past Mm -hmm. um, will sometimes artificially raise their voice so Mm -hmm. it can go further so i don't think it's necessarily like a biological thing i think it's built into our culture in that we demonize women who take up space or who are loud and boisterous and uh unapologetic yeah yes yeah so i think it's more important to correct the problems with with men and then women will be able to grow into that space that they're given and the the flip side of this is people don't give up power willingly like ever that's just yeah that's true yeah I mean it's not in their best interest to do so in the short term anyway but in the long term I, I think it's better for everyone for the the inequality to, to be uh, balanced
1: right I see so coming from inside of feminism what I really want is I want to see that cannot drink the ranch dressing what I sorry that was my cat what I want to see is I was very good at establishing boundaries when I was a kid when I was very young because my parents let me do that they left me you know my parents were like if you get into a hairy situation and you let us know we will back you up every single time and I, I did a thread on that I think a I need to do a thread of threads because that's a, from a long time ago but it's I think pretty good that my parents I I think the way that I put it was my parents didn't um My parents left me my teeth, if that makes any sense. And sometimes that meant that I, you know, gave my parents the teeth, but Mm -hmm. it also meant that when I was in danger, I felt comfortable, you know, standing up for myself and in a a both physical and emotional sense. And that makes you, that made me extremely unpopular sometimes, but I was always safe. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I think my parents just fucking hit out of the park it's hard to raise girls to be both socially adept and also be really good at, at you know keeping their own boundaries. And that's something that I, I would like to see more women get good at because I feel like I know a lot of girls who will come to me in private and be like, this thing's happening and I don't, I don't really know what to do about it. And I'm like, get mad, get upset, get big about it. You know, these are things that you need to feel comfortable doing in order for your basic safety, like in a gas station parking lot, all the way to negotiating with your boss, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, this is a, a thing that needs to go all the way across the spectrum for women. And I want to see, that's something that I don't see in, in like, uh, at Elode's NL or something on Twitter. He's fantastic. Fantastic guy, we talk all the time. He's the other half of my brain. Elodiz always talks about feeling like women look outward to fix society and men look inward to fix themselves more like by and large just generally. And I thought that was really interesting because I think it's true that feminism does seek to fix society and I think that's good because I think it needs fixing. But I also think that we we could do a little bit of like looking inward and being like, okay, I don't mean for people to take responsibility for harms that they've taken because that's not what I mean here. That's definitely not what we want. But what I do want is for people to look at the times when maybe standing up for themselves would have worked, hmm. or trying it out and seeing how it works for them. because I I may or may not carry a weapon with me most of the time when I'm out in public, so I feel pretty good about, you know, causing a scene if I've got to. You know, if something happens, I feel pretty comfortable. And also, if you're a woman in a public place and somebody is bothering you, somebody is creeping you out, your best interest is to get loud and make sure that other people around you know what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. So that you don't end up separated from from everybody alone with this person who could do you great harm, right? And that goes for, again, gas station parking lot all the way to negotiating with your boss, right? And that's something that I really, I'd like to see more women feel comfortable doing and that's something that I think women have to start out for themselves. Just like I don't think women, like, women can necessarily solve the manosphere problem. Uh, I don't think that men can solve the bo- women establishing boundaries problem as well as we could, I guess I should say. Add a little caveat there.
2: Yeah.
0: Have you ever thought about doing a course or something about setting boundaries and expectations or things of the sort?
1: I have. I I can't imagine there would be a a shit ton of interest in it just because I'm, you know, a little tiny Twitter account really more than anything. But what I'm currently working on that I want to do is I'm writing a book, a novel, not a, I shouldn't say book, because that implies like nonfiction. Because I, I want to talk about this. And I'm, I'm an artist by trade. I'm an actress. I'm a singer. I'm a writer. I'm not. I mean, I guess writing counts for nonfiction. But I'm an artist first and then everything else kind of second. I mean, I I grew up singing, I grew up acting, I grew up, you know, writing stuff and all that. And that's like, feels like most at home for me. Whereas like, if I was to write nonfiction, I don't think I would even know what I was talking about. (laughs) But in, you know, creating characters or whatever for something like this, that actually like, just just works for me. And uh, without like, I can't spoil the novel or whatever, but I wanted to take a woman character it's probably sort of like me, maybe circa 2014, 16, or whatever. And I wanted to put her in a position where she was absolutely undeniably female. Mm-hmm. And being absolutely undeniably female was both what got her into the problem and also what could get her out of it. Mm-hmm. And I started working on it a couple months ago, and I'm, I like what I've got so far. I won't say much more than that, but I do want to write it one day and, you know, finish it, get it published, whatever, but... Feels good. Feels good to be working on something that I feel like if people were to read it, maybe change their ideas about things a little bit. That feels really good.
0: Yeah. I mean, I also write a lot. I do it for work mostly, but whenever I'm fully like mentally healthy and fully present, it's Mm -hmm. also one of my favorite things to do. But when I'm not, when I'm not fully mentally healthy, it's like a bit of a struggle. Right.
2: Right. It is. Um,
0: But I just mean to say that writing is a very important thing to me. And I think it's very generally important, especially in terms of like representation. You know, we don't see those types of female characters a lot, or or at least in certain like bubbles, you don't see them at all. Right. Absolutely. Uh, You know, I, I try to go out of my way and seek those type of people out. You know whether they're being depicted in in not uh fiction or whatever doesn't matter i I like to find and be close to you know women like you who stand for what i think is a a good like representation of that you know what i mean so yes so i think it doesn't feel like it's very important just when you put out like a book uh or a movie or whatever Right. Because because it's so much fun to make. Like in the process, you're you yeah. Th- you think it's just play and and that's fine, but it also has very real results in the real world because you never know when a thirteen year old girl is gonna pick up something that you wrote Absolutely. and it'll completely change the trajectory of their life because they had never seen someone like that before and it spoke to them in a way that said, Oh, I can be this too mm-hmm. So yeah, I think uh, whether it's fiction or nonfiction doesn't really matter. It matters right. that that they're there, like they're right. being represented in ways that are admirable and um, like you want to imitate or emulate those characters.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I think about God. Like there was this country. I don't remember what country. Don't ask me because I don't know. But it was like a. Uh, communist country basically small communist country and they got dallas which is the drama that aired in the 80s about like oil barons in dallas you know and they aired it to their people with the intent of being like look how awful and greedy and terrible these capitalists are right and the people overthrew the country because they were overthrew the government because they were like you mean the poorest people in america have a car
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know what i mean and so it's like to think that art doesn't echo into eternity into people's lives is ugh, foolish
2: hmm.
1: foolish at best to put it very nicely but you know I think about the the books that I read in the and the art that I you know consumed as a, a kid and as like a teenager and like what a profound effect it had on me you know and like the certain characters that I saw and I was like fuck if that ain't me if that ain't what I need to learn if that ain't my hero's journey you know things like that and it feels huge it feels like extremely important and I'm like eternally grateful to those like pieces of art you know like I've got
0: who were some of the the characters or some of the artists that did that for you
1: so I would be like remiss to not mention watching Kill Bill 2 like completely changed my life as like a eight-year-old or something my parents are really interesting people in that they don't they don't have any like formal art education or anything, but they just weirdly have always gravitated towards like very well-made films. Like I grew up watching a bunch of Coen brothers and stuff like that. And like even Napoleon Dynamite, when it came out, they like loved it. It's like little tiny indie movie, you know, like weird shit like that. My parents are just like fucking oaky, smoky hillbillies. Like they don't know, Ugh. excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> um, you know, and I remember like watching Kill Bill 2 and like the trailer fight between Uma Thurman and Daryl Hannah and being like, if this isn't what I do for like what I do the rest of my life it was all a waste. This is it. Like, this is the, the tits, you know? And I, I read 1984 when I was in the 8th grade because I figured out it wasn't on our syllabus. Like, for what I would have to read before I graduated and I wanted to read it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's the kind of 8th grader I was. But I remember reading the character of Julia and feeling like, fuck, like, this is such... She's such an amazing character. She's such an interesting person. She's just like, yeah, I'm going to float within the the rules of society and just, you know, and then I'm going to do whatever I want and nobody's going to catch me and I don't care you know, and I felt like that was huge, you know, I was like, man, you mean you could be this way even in this kind of, like, society, even in this kind of, like, you can make your own rules in there? Why can't I make my own rules here, you -hmm. know, and that, like, had a profound effect on me, and it's a shame there's not better, there's not better, like, iconography and art from that book, because I think I would be, I'd just surround myself with it all the time, but I'm, like, really grateful for these pieces, for, or these pieces uh, existing you know and I, I think about when I'm making art like I hope that I get it as right mm. as it feels to me and part of that I think is just getting the heart of it into it because mm-hmm. like you can tell like I've seen movies and I'm like especially on, I'm like a when I say like Ken and I are filmmakers I'm talking we're very small time extremely small time and but even then I see pieces of art that people have spent several thousand dollars on gotten all their friends to help them with And they're soulless pieces of crap. Mm -hmm. I'm like, how do you, how do you, do you wake up every day and want to make this movie? Like you just have to tell people what you know, like, no, you made this movie because you thought people would like it. And that's not a reason to make a movie.
0: Mm -hmm. You know what (laughs) I mean? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I talk, I talk to a lot of people about how if you don't enjoy making whatever it is that you're making, people aren't going to enjoy it. You shouldn't make it. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I, uh, I'm curious about your real-life heroes, too.
1: Hmm. You're good at this. Thank you. Uh, probably. Well, to start, I have to talk about my grandpa. And I'll probably cry a little bit. And that's okay. I'm not going to stop. All so, right. So my grandpa was in Vietnam. Uh, he got a bronze star in Vietnam. And I recently, I wrote a long thread about, you know, visiting his grave and and meeting his family, which was fucking wild. I mean, that was just, if that wasn't divine, I mean, I don't know what it was. It was just, it was a truly, like, magical, felt like mystical experience. And Papa was really fascinating because he grew up, I mean, dirt, dirt, poor. Like, ten siblings, Oklahoma, dirt, poor. I mean, like poor poor and uh, excuse me he and basically all of his brothers went into the military because you know there was some shit like World War II happening so everybody was going you know and if you were poor the military was a pretty sweet ticket you know it, I mean it really was and uh, he was not old enough to serve in, in there at all or whatever but he was on the younger end of his siblings and he grew up like during sort of like the the aftershock of the depression which people don't understand, if you've never lived near the Dust Bowl, if you've never lived near the parts of Oklahoma that were hit hardest by the depression, that the depression didn't end there like it did everywhere else. It took another 10 years and we're still feeling, like you still look at Oklahoma and you can still tell that there was a huge economic downturn at some point in the past, right? And what's super interesting about him was he, from all accounts, from everything I can tell, is that he was just always just a very sweet boy, very nice boy. But he joined the military and, like, left, came back for a little bit, married my grandmother, because they have been on again, off again, hot and cold dating for, like, I think a year or so, and some change. And he spent a lot of his time in enlisted. And, like, when Vietnam happened, he was in his, like, 30s. So he was, like, an old man by military standards. And he went to Vietnam, and he got offered several promotions while he was in Vietnam, but he didn't take them because he didn't want to leave his men. He felt like that was, like, dishonorable. He didn't want to do that. And... He uh, he won the Bronze Star for, there, he was, this is a cool story, okay, I promise it's long, but it's a cool story. He was moving with a convoy or whatever, and he was coming up late. He was coming up uh, towards the end with his commanding officer, who was this little West Point graduate, this little piss pants who didn't know anything about anything, never been in combat, never seen anything. And they ended up like coming up behind the convoy because they left a little bit late or whatever and the first and the last jeeps or whatever they were moving in the convoy had been knocked off and they were, the Kong was like shooting everybody in between this is a super common tactic well, they pulled up behind them and they had orders not to engage and this little piss-pants West Point graduate was like well, don't engage, we can't do anything Papa was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that and he sort of like defied orders and... I've heard the story told that he shot 36 shots and thinks he made 33 hits. I don't know how accurate that is. That's just what I've been told. And uh, when they they got everything moving, they got these other like vehicles moved out of the way or whatever, and they got to the base they were headed to. And when they got there, the Colonel obviously wanted to know what had um, happened, what had transpired, and Papa told them. And Papa, you know, was like, okay listen and this west point grad guy didn't want me to do anything and the guy was like okay we'll, we'll take care of him meaning we're going to take him out somewhere we're going to shoot him and pretend that he was killed by somebody and uh, papa was like please don't do that like just don't he's just a little piss pants kid he doesn't know anything it's not his fault and that was what he ended up getting the, the colonel put in for him to get a medal of honor or whatever and he ended up getting the bronze star which is pretty baller but what's fascinating to me really about his story more than anything was after vietnam ended he left enlisted and he became a sergeant major and he was just a cook he Mm. just went to different bases and got their kitchens in order which strikes me as so beyond funny like you take these people who are like hardened killers and then you're like all right now please go run the kitchens better you know something about that is so funny but by the time that i knew him i was a late in life child for my father so this is my paternal grandfather and so i was the first girl in two generations And I'm still the only girl of my generation. So I was a big deal. It was a very big deal. And uh, Papa, upon having grandkids, he quit drinking. He quit smoking. He started taking better care of himself. And he became like a a fantastic grandfather. And so he died when I was about 12. And it's like a damn shame in the sense that I never got to know him as an adult. And that's something I would have really liked to have done. But what was so cool about Papa was that he he never got this sort of like idea that he got a raw deal like he always felt like he did everything as well as he possibly could have and he was completely happy with it and you know he lived all over the world they lived in hawaii they lived in germany multiple places in germany and he spent a lot of time in vietnam and he never talked about it he didn't want to talk about it people would bring up his like bronze star he didn't want to fucking talk about it It it's just like whatever it didn't matter to him But what was so interesting to me was I only knew him as like this goofy grandpa who cooked with us all the time and let us sit on the, you know, kitchen countertops and, you know, let us get away with fucking murder, basically, you know? And so what's fascinating to me is like, I've learned more about him as an adult than I ever knew about him as a kid. And that's a pretty weird relationship to have with somebody that, you know, like you knew so well, because I spent every day with him all the time Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. They were our our, my grandparents were our babysitters, basically. And so what I find so fascinating about his life was just this sort of like, it was very fuck you got mine, but it was also this idea that the fact that he let this West Point grad go is this thing that sticks in my mind and I can't, I sort of can't get away with it, get away from it. I think about it all the time. And I think it's, that's the kind of person that I want to be like when I grow up, you know, the kind of person who has patience with people who suck shit and almost get you killed. Like, to still have patience for somebody like that is just, like, beyond to me. Like, what could you possibly, you know what I mean? Like, just think about how wild that is. Somebody almost gets you and all your friends killed, and they're like, well, we're going to go take care of him. And you're like, no, don't. He's just a shit kid. He doesn't know anything.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's the kind of thing that, you know, like, he didn't join the military because he wanted glory or fame or whatever he did it for meat like he did it for his family you know what i mean he did it so that like he could have a life worth living and to like just drag himself out of poverty and to think about the kind of person that he must have been is just like remarkable to me Mm -hmm. and it feels good to be his progeny it feels good to be his only granddaughter you know and that's the kind of shit that like i feel like i have everybody you know when I went to college, I like, it was the first time I'd ever really kind of considered the fact that there were people who came from home lives who like sucked
2: mm.
1: because mine was so great. And I feel like immensely, immensely grateful for that. And like all my heroes are in my family, really. because mm. like, it doesn't get any more badass than that. You mm. know, long story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's where the good stuff is. I love it whenever I can draw a story like that out of somebody because it's, it's,
1: that's what it's all about. You know,
0: it's oftentimes, you know, uh, something that you hold close to your chest and not share with everybody because it's so personal, but right. but those, those personal things are what really connect with other people. So I'm really glad you've shared that. I'm Thanks. curious about an example, maybe from your own life where your first instinct was to do the opposite of what your grandpa would have done, but then you remember that story and used it in, uh, productive way
1: this is another really long story let's hear it but i think i will end up writing a thread about this one day or putting it it down on something because i feel like if it was up until this point in my life i'll turn 25 this year in the first quarter point of my life i think it's the big it's the big thing it's like one of the it's my one of my biggest like hero's journey moments i guess or whatever i went to college for theater and theater departments are really strange in the sense that you're all your friends or these people that you're in classes with that you're in shows with and everything. I, I worked, I kept a schedule where I got up every day at about eight thirty, went to class at nine and then I was, I had classes till, until about three, you know, maybe like a break for lunch. And then from three to six, I worked at the shop and I built the sets. I was a carpenter. And then at about six 37, I had rehearsal till late at night and late at night. If I wanted to do anything, I would just see my friends and we'd sit in our cars and chain smoke because there was nothing to do in town. Mm -hmm. And that was my schedule basically five days a week. And then all day, Saturday rehearsals and all day Sunday rehearsals, you know? So I was busy, 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 busy. And so these people that you do this with every day become like, I mean, they really become your family because I always said like, we're the cult. And when people like leave the cult, like there's just no time for them anymore because they're not in the cult. They don't do this with you all the time, you know? And when I went to this school, I picked this school because I wanted to learn from this one professor, and this professor got fired my freshman year for, I don't know if the term is molesting, but basically holding scholarships over students' heads for sexual favors. Mm. I was not one of them, but several of my very good friends were, several of the people that I idolized were, and he was gone within the weekend, and we were trying to put together our last show of the year with a new director that we flew in. It was a lot. and it turned out all good you know in the sense that we kind of got like some justice there he was sent out or whatever but the school never publicly sort of denounced him so he does get to work in the industry which is pretty upsetting but that's okay because there's nothing I can do about it And I say it's okay in the sense that there's nothing I can do about it and in the next year we had a, a good professor he was great but he couldn't stay because he didn't have he didn't have a master's so he couldn't he couldn't stay it was very sad very sad we were all very sad to see him go and then my junior year we hired a new professor and uh, I'll call him Bill because I'll just call him Bill. So he has a name. So Bill was great. He's a really good professor. He and I especially got on really, really well. And at this point as a junior, I was sort of like the unofficial like sort of student head of the department in a sense that I was involved in everything all the time, sun up to sundown. And uh, junior year, everything was cool. Everything was fine, except I took a, a class Uh, that was taught by his wife who was also a theater professional and bill's wife did not like me Hmm. and i i could not figure out why for the life of me i was like i don't think i ever said anything to her i don't think and she just didn't like me everything i i brought to class like work she was never impressed with it she was always really hard on it and you know i I try to tell myself well it's because she thinks you're good she wants to be hard on you you know because it's because it's good work and i found out later that year from another professor kind of just like you know was like hey come in here let me tell you something was like she thinks you're having an affair with bill and i was like oh no bill was like three inches shorter than me bald now there's anything wrong with being bald but definitely not my type Mm
2: -hmm.
1: also married with a with a child a baby that was around all the time i was not there was nothing going on like that but i digress so i distanced myself from bill a lot and the problems seemed to go away it's like all right feels like we're good here so we start my senior year and when we left the school year in the junior year at the end of my junior year we knew these were the four shows we were going to do in the in the my senior year i was very excited we were going to do a gender bent shakespeare i was going to play brutus beyond a reasonable doubt most likely if not one of the other big wigs in Julius Caesar I was very excited about it we had great musicals lined up I was very excited and we get back to school my senior year and suddenly our four shows have changed the gender bent Shakespeare is no more we're now doing a different Shakespeare one that I hate and we're starting the year with uh, a French piece it's in Ionesco and Ionesco is kind of a weirdo he's absurdist Uh, and it's called Rhinoceros and not only is Bill not directing it, his wife is directing it. It's a very interesting choice because she was not a director. She was a, um, a different trades, different kind of theatrical trade. And I remember being like, oh, fucking K, hopefully I don't get in this one. This is one time in my warrior career I did not want to be cast in something. And I got cast. And I was like, well, fuck me. Okay, so the first, to put this in perspective for you, the first act is a, there's a long scene between my character and my character's partner, and then another set of partners, and we're sort of bouncing dialogue off each other from each other's conversation, so it's a very difficult type of scene to do, and we were under-rehearsed, we were getting um, our dates about, like, when to be off book and everything, really too, so- too soon, like, we didn't have enough time to prepare, basically, and... uh we get to the first line through, which is where you just try to go off book. And then you call for a line from the stage management and they'll feed you a line if you need it. And we all knew heading into this, this was going to be a bad fucking rehearsal because none of us were ready because we hadn't had enough time. We had not been adequately prepared. We had not been adequately directed. It was going to be bad. And it was. And when we walked into rehearsal that day, she held up an adult diaper. And she said, whoever misses the most lines is going to wear this diaper in front of the class for the rest of rehearsal. Want to bet you want to just take a fucking bet right now who ends up in this diaper. So anyway, we, we do this, this thing and, and I've got, like I said, me and my partner and the other two people have the hardest part of this whole act. I mean, the other people don't have near as much to lose here. We just have way more lines and we have the more difficult lines. So at a certain point, I was like, you know what? I've called line enough. I'm probably third in line for the person who's called it the most. I'm just going to start calling it every line because I'm like, at least if somebody ends up in this fucking diaper, it can be me because I can handle it. I don't know about my friends. You know, I don't know about all of them. So I call line like a f- six billion fucking times, partially because I don't know my lines and partially because I'm like, well, what, might as well. And we get to the end of the, of the act and she's very fucking upset at us. And she's really reading us the right act. You guys didn't prepare. You guys aren't professional. Yada, yada, yada. It's all her fault and we know this, but we just kind of let her talk, you know? And we think she's like, I think she's like dropped the diaper thing because it's like not clear. We've used up so much rehearsal time. We don't know where we're even going to go from here. And she's like, oh, and by the way, Darby put the diaper on. And I'm like, fan-fucking-tastic. And for whatever reason, I did. And my little group of four people we got sent to another room to do lines and i'm like hopping mad Mm -hmm. i'm like seething i'm like probably as angry as i've ever been in my entire life so we get into that room and i take the thing off and uh, i just leave it on the floor and i'm like i'm going to the bathroom and the stage manager who's with us and is my at this point my very best friend in the entire world is like yeah you do that (laughs) so i go to the bathroom and i just rage i mean i just really sit there and fucking rage and I come back in, and everyone's kind of looking at me like, well, and I just don't say anything. I'm like, let's just do the fucking scene. We do the scene a couple times, then we get called back to the main room or whatever. And I reach for this diaper because I'm like, I don't think I'm going to put this back on, but I will carry it back in there. And one of my partners, or what I've seen partners, grabbed this diaper from me, threw it in the trash can, and said, You're not putting that thing back on. And I was like, Great, <laughs> fantastic. So we walk back in, she says nothing about it, and we go home that night. And at this point, there's sort of a, a thing. You're not always going to be friends with all of your theater people. I had a bunch of them come up to me and they were like, that's super fucked up. I was like, I know, I just don't know what to do about it, <laughs> you know? And I ended up grabbing one of my professors who I was very close with. And I, I said, listen, I don't think this is like a thing that should ever happen ever again. But I also don't think that telling her is going to change anything. Hmm. And he says, well, what do, what do the other students think? And I'm like, I don't know. So I called sort of like a feels like a fucking, I don't know, like round table. I called everybody in the theater department, which was like 40 people into my like tiny three bedroom apartment that's <laughs> like on campus. And I'm like, listen, here's the thing. I'll pursue this if you guys want me to, but if you don't, I'll let it go. I just don't want it to be any of you in it next time. And pretty much unanimously, everybody was like, listen, as a sophomore, as a freshman, I've got too much to lose. I can't push this myself. But if you want to push it, you can do that. And that tends to just be the attitude overall. And I'm like, okay, great. So I asked the professor, I'm like, well, everybody wants me to do something about it. What do I do? And he says, well, you should try to take it to Bill first. Try to settle it in-house. Fuck. Fuck, fuck, fuck. I don't want to do that. So I go to Bill with a couple students like with me to back me up. And I stand there in front of this man and I cry my eyes out about how upset I am about this and about how humiliating it was and yada, yada, yada. And he like puts his hands behind his head in this like sort of like performative, like this doesn't bother me thing. And I knew it bothered him at the time. It was obvious, but, and he's like, well, I just think if you guys had done your work, this wouldn't be a problem. And nobody at this point in the department, I don't think had seen me cry at all. Everybody knew this was like extremely weird behavior for me. And he knew it too. And it was just trying to play it off or whatever. And I think he thought the problem was settled. Cause we were like, listen, we, we think you're, you're, you're technically her boss. You're the only one who can do anything about this. And he says, well, I'm basically not going to. And he even chastises me for not knowing my lines, which come to find out later, I wasn't actually the person who called line the most. I was second most, and she picked me instead. Mm. Just a thought. Anyway. So, at this point, I'm like, okay, well, we didn't get anywhere. And the best friend, my stage manager, we'll call her Jan. Jan was like, I don't feel like we got hurt out. And I was like, me either. So, then that Saturday, we take it to his boss. And she's appalled, freaked out not i don't think because she's concerned about us but because this is a serious title IX violation and this goes all the way to the state you know education board if, if they're not careful so the next week i get called into the dean's office with like just a couple people with me who were there as witnesses or whatever and then a couple days after that i get called into the vice principal's office of the not vice principal what's it, vice president <laughs> of the university and i think i probably would have been called into the president's office but he and I had a personal outside of the school connection that could have been seen as a conflict of interest, I think. And at this point, Bill and his wife were out of town for a week on vacation. And when they got back in town, I knew because that morning was probably when they would be called in. And at noon, Bill texts me and says, Will you come to my office? I'm like, In retrospect, I probably should have said, not without somebody else with me, but I went anyway, because I'm just not scared of him, or his wife, or their baby, and uh, I go in there, and he was a sweaty guy where, like, he would be wearing, like, a button-up shirt, and he'd be kind of sweaty from, like, here down to, like, you know, just deep pit pretty bad, and I remember walking in, and he moved his arm, and he had sweat all the way down to his belt, and I was like, they got him we got him boys you know what i mean i was like shit and his wife is sitting there just like she's a complete fucking wreck and i'm like here we go so basically bill renegs on everything he said and he's like i didn't mean for you to walk away feeling that way i didn't buy yada 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 you know and i don't buy it for a second and i'm like okay whatever and I was like, yeah, this was, like, humiliating. I told you it was humiliating. You didn't fix it. Like, what else did you expect me to do? Because next time it's not going to be me. It's going to be somebody else. And I don't want that to happen to anybody else. And I remember so vividly his wife looking at me and being like, I can't believe that I'm the teacher who scarred somebody the way that I was scarred. And I was like, (sighs) fucking tell it to somebody else was my first thought, you know? But I remember thinking like, I just, I don't know how I could ever look these people in the eye again, you know? And uh, she she looked at me and she was like, I'm so sorry. And, you know, I was like, but it, it was so performative at this point. I knew, I knew they'd, give, they'd been given a chance to fix this of their own accord. And they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. Even when I told them, I was like, hey, this is like seriously upsetting me. They're like, we don't care, you know? So, I I looked at her and this is partially, I don't know, this is maybe the most like magnanimous thing I've ever done. And also, like, simultaneously, I think the most fucked up, like, evil thing I've ever done. I looked at her and I said, I just want a hug. Like, that would fix it. And in a way, it did fix it for me because I just like was able to accept that I knew who she was as a person. I knew who he was as a person. And I can't express enough how much I idolized Bill as a mentor I mean he meant everything to me I talked to him all the time I, I didn't you know ever make a choice about anything without running it by him you know and to look at my heroes like you know as like these people who like hurt me and not only hurt me but just like unabashedly unapologetically hurt me you know and and then try to be coy about it I was just like you fucking snakes in the grass both of you and I remember the vice president asking me do you think think that you can be in a classroom with them again and what he was saying was do you think you can be in a classroom with them again but what he was really what he meant was do they need to be fired or can you deal with it and i said i can deal with it said i can deal with staring i can deal with them and it cost me i think uh a role in our next play that we auditioned for which really hurt my resume because it was the only shakespeare that i would have had on my resume at that point at a collegiate level so that was really upsetting but you know, I wanted to give them the chance to learn. Mm. You know, the chance to be better teachers, better educators, better people. And do I th- think they got that? No. Mm. But they did end up getting fired at the end of the year for having some other just egregious nonsense with our last show of the year. And I, I like to believe that if nothing else, they got the fear of God put into them about the way that they treat students. And from what I can tell... They have moved on to another university because, again, my university just did not decide to push this the way they should have. Mm-hmm. Which I, they're, 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 This university is a university that avoids public scandal at all costs. <laughs> you know, and from what I can tell, they seem to be fantastic professors wherever they are now. And they seem to have no problems. And I, I hope that that's true. Because otherwise I would feel like this was a snake that I left, you know, mm-hmm. left for somebody else. But you know, I did want to offer them the choice and the chance to learn whether they did or not. I mean, I ultimately don't know, but yeah, I don't know.
0: It's very admirable. I think giving them the the chance to learn and correct their own mistakes is admirable in and of itself. It also reminded me of something Nassim Taleb said about Mm -hmm. revenge. And I'm of a mind that you should just like forgive people like you did and do everything that you can to correct the situation so that it doesn't happen again Mm -hmm. but also like once it's said and done just be like they're fine you know like Mm -hmm. i'll i'll deal with it so they can have a chance to correct course and grow as a person right but this thing that nasim taleb said made me think twice about this and i'm curious to hear your thoughts about it as well he said something along the lines of um revenge not being about like a personal vendetta against somebody else that mm-hmm. harmed, harmed you. It's about ensuring that that person never gets a chance to do it again to somebody right. else.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's a pretty decent argument against what you and I have typically done in the past to just like forgive people and mm-hmm. uh, hope for the best. You know, so I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that? idea
1: if i think i had really had the power to have them like dragged in the press disbarred in the sense that they could never teach a university again i probably would have done that Mm. i don't think my university would have allowed me to do that so in a certain way it's you know maybe the fault of the institution but at the same time i also think maybe you know i could have pushed harder but i don't know what that would have looked like Mm -hmm. but judging by the way that I, the, the feelings I was getting from administration about how everything was going to go down, I felt like it was going to be like me or him, and probably not me. And I could be completely wrong about that, you know. And I don't, I don't want to shit all over the institution that I learned from because they were great to me in a lot of, a lot of ways, and they really did, I think, handle this very well in the sense that they were, they kept me anonymous. They were very like, they, they, they did a lot of things better than I would have expected, I'll put it to you that way Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I just don't think that at the end of the day I had any more power to have them disbarred than I, what I ultimately got from them
2: Mm
1: -hmm. at the same time though part of me wishes I would have gone harder in retrospect, but without the foresight of where I was what would happen at the end of the year of other things that did involve me egregious problems that didn't involve me necessarily i think they would have been fired anyway at the end of the year from this institution and i assumed at this time we didn't know what happened to that first professor who got fired way way back my freshman year we thought he'd been disbarred basically we were wrong about that that's what we thought at the time so i thought if i give them this information if they know that this happened the university will do to him what he did to our my first professor that isn't what ended up happening in a way, if I could if I could just, you know, tear them apart with my bare hands, I would have. But I wasn't in a position where I could do that. And nowadays, if I were to ever work in academia as a theater person or whatever, I would be screaming it from the rooftops. Like, do not work with these people. This is what these people did to me. Yada, yada, yada. And luckily, because I think of the era of Me Too, it would get some traction and people would pay attention to it. I just think that at, And also to go through the meetings with him, with Bill, and then to go to his boss and his boss's boss and boss, you know, all the way up the line. I was not sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was, I think I have, like, notebooks where I just, you can just see me, like, writing, like, little sort of platitudes to myself, like, you know, things that I needed to, like, encourage myself to believe that what I was doing was the right thing because I believed so much in this institution and the the theater family that I was in, and I believed so much in Bill that I think I I just didn't want to believe that something like this could happen to me or that it could happen to one of my friends. And I, I really, it's such a, it's so funny because you, you think of yourself at 21 and it's like, well, that's like, at 24, I look at her and I'm like, oh, you're so naive. Mm-hmm. At 21, I thought I was like as hardened as I would ever be, you know. And I thought that I couldn't possibly believe good things of someone who would do me harm. But I fully did, you know. And I look at the way that I dealt with this whole situation. I just, I had faith in my institution and I, I had faith in these things that I was beholden to and I believed that they would take care of it. Did they ultimately, I mean, I like I said, I really don't even know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what this institution said to their next place. You know, there's no way of knowing. And, ma- you know, maybe this place that they work now hired them in spite of it. Maybe not. I don't know. So in a certain way for future reference i think i will just cut the head off the snake and call it done but it feels like such a mark of who i was as a person at that time to think that i didn't do that if i could have again i don't know if i could have but you know i don't know does that answer that question at all yeah
0: yeah yeah i mean there was there was no right or wrong answer it's just curious because um i have gone through okay i'll I'll share a very very personal story with you um because I feel like it'll illustrate why I'm interested in your answer. Okay. I had every opportunity to, uh, you know, not exact revenge, but like make some noise. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: And I chose not to, because I didn't want to go through it. And I didn't feel like this person I mean, I felt like they deserved it, but I wasn't the person to do it because-
1: Right. That I, was what I think I talked to myself up the most about was whether or not I felt I was justified in swinging the sword. Yeah. Yeah. I Sorry. mean,
0: I have had like serious anger issues like from the time I was born literally to the time that I was like, you know, probably 16 or 17. Because mm-hmm. I just like had this realization one day that I'm like, oh shit, like, why the fuck am I angry all the time? You know, like it was a hard lesson for me to learn to let go of that anger.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And when I say from the time that I was born, I mean like pretty much literally because there's pictures of me at like a little over one year old, maybe two at most. And I'm just mead mugging hard. <laughs> like my attitude even back then was fuck you, I don't care and it took me years and years and years to unlearn that so
2: mm-hmm.
0: so now anytime somebody's like confrontational with me my first reaction is like what's actually troubling you right now how can i help you with that or do you need to just like take it out on me for a second because i'm happy to do that because right. now now that i'm like so detached from my anger i can i can accept their hostility with some level of grace and I'll just be like, oh, this has nothing to do with me, like mm-hmm. at all. Right. Like if you bump into somebody in a gas station parking lot, as you said, and they're just mm-hmm. like fucking pissed off and want to fight and they want to scream at somebody, I'll be like, I volunteer, like go, go mm-hmm. for it, man. Like if that's what you truly need to feel better about your life right now, then go for it. So anyway, that really influenced my decision with not making a noise and and putting this person in a very precarious position even though they very much deserved it this was all preamble to say i was going through intel's education technology accelerator in redwood city california as uh employee number one and i was like the youngest person there and it was a very very new experience for me because i'd never been in anything like that right especially at that level You know, like I, I'd been a part of a couple of startups before, which was how I got into that position in the first place. But this was like going to the major leagues after being in the the training. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Just straight like zero to a hundred. And I started this marketing campaign where I, I had to go around and ask like every education technology executive that I could find for all their like life lessons and I would share their life lessons on social media and things and so like the the good reason for this campaign was so that I could position our company an authority in the field of education technology but the real reason was that I really wanted to learn from these people and this gave me a good excuse to get close to them right so in the process of doing that marketing campaign mm-hmm. I met Someone I will call Declan. Okay. And he was by far the smartest person I have ever met. Mm -hmm. Still to this day, I think there's, there's Mm -hmm. a couple people who are like top contenders, but this person was scary smart. And I mean that in every sense of the word, like he Mm -hmm. could like pinpoint the exact question to ask, to make you go, oh shit, I have to reevaluate my entire life now right and i loved that like everything about it was just exactly what i was looking for so luckily he and i became like really close friends and hung out like all the time for the next four months because that's how long the program was and there were a lot of red flags surrounding declan Mm -hmm. and i chose deliberately to ignore them because he had what I wanted most knowledge.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I put up with a lot, you know, he was never aggressive or, or mean towards me, but he did some questionable things and was pretty unethical as far as I'm concerned.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And there was, you know, more than one instance where I'm like, oh shit, I should probably stop hanging out with this person, but I like them so much because they're so like charismatic.
2: Right. Mm -hmm.
0: and they're so smart that I'm like okay I'm willing to put up with the uh the poor ethics and the aggression and all of that and even to this day I say that I would do it all over again if I had the opportunity okay so Mm -hmm. that just tells you like where where my head's at and where it's always been but one of the first red flags was he didn't have a, a relationship with his mom to the point where she didn't uh, ha- even have his phone number, right? Small, but like significant red flag. Right. One day he was talking about a former business partner of his and I was like, oh, do you still keep up with him? And he kind of like chuckled to himself and he was like, no, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of burning bridges because like he thought this was funny. Um, Oof. Okay. Yeah. So uh, and then there's several other smaller things like this that just made me like take a step back and like question everything that he was about mm-hmm. because that's not at all like what I'm about. You know, I will try to to remain civil and and keep everybody happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not like a huge people pleaser, but I want everybody to feel comfortable in their right. environment. Anyway, the real big red flag was one day we were out at a bar with the, the rest of the cohort. You know, so in this program, mm-hmm. there's eight companies and we all go out to a bar. We're all having fun. You know, like people are drifting off like as the as the night goes on. Mm-hmm. And Declan is hitting on one of the other guys in our cohort. And I see nothing wrong with this. Like he's very clearly very open sexually, but like he was all of the things. He was just right. a very, very open person. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I left that night to go back to my apartment and woke up the next day, go into work. And one of the other companies in the cohort is packing up all their shit and leaving to go to another office down the hall. And I'm like, hey man, what's going on? He's like, we don't feel comfortable being in the same room as Declan anymore. And I'm like, oh, okay. Whoa, like, okay. So so I grabbed a, a box of office supplies and follow him follow him into the hallway and we're like walking down this really long hallway. I'm like, uh, tell me everything. What, what happened last night? So the guy that he was hitting on was a part of their company mm-hmm. and they all go back to Declan's apartment. And it's like Declan, the guy that he's hitting on and two other people
2: mm-hmm.
0: and Declan is making the moves and not like making any progress with this person. So he decides to try to get him drunk and it doesn't work because the guy doesn't drink. And like very firmly says, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. When that doesn't work, Declan puts some MDMA in his drink. And fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It gets worse. Just wait. <laughs> oh, fuck. Okay. Uh, but the guy, because he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't do any drugs whatsoever. He flipped out. You know, like he had never experienced anything like a mind-altering drug before right
1: being on mdma when you didn't ask to be on mdma yeah fuck. right
0: right and he it was a surprise too it's not like he said hey do you want this and really right. ingested it fuck. so the guy that was drugged freaked the fuck out and they spent i think nine hours in the er like trying to calm him down and like giving him uh fluids and water and like anxiety medication because he was just freaking the fuck out Rightfully so. Right. Right. So they go into work. They they tell, um, you know, Intel's management what happened and they rightfully so said, okay, we're going to move you guys to another office and we're going to sit down with Declan and talk to him about this. So that was the biggest red flag. And my immediate reaction was, oh, okay, I think I know what's going on here, but I need to find out. Uh, So I called up Declan and I said, "Hey man, let's go out for a drink." And this was like right after he had drugged somebody else. So like to everyone that I tell this story to, they're like, "Uh, "What?" Uh, Yeah. Why would you do that? And I'm like, In your
1: position, I would have done the exact same thing. Yeah. So I just like to say,
0: I mean, he and I had been like really close this entire time. Right. And uh, I had my suspicions about something, so I wanted to find out. So we went out for a drink. We end up back at his apartment, just me and him again. People are like, "Why, why?" <laughs> but I felt comfortable in my ability to navigate this situation with right. some level of, uh, you know, nuance.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We end up back at his apartment, and it's just me and him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, two o'clock in the morning at this point. And he makes a sexual pass at me, and I get up. You know, not not as a like reactionary thing, but I just very gracefully like get up go to the bathroom come back and reseat myself you know like three feet away from him so it's a very very soft rejection you know I'm not right. saying no thanks man or, or like Ew, what are you doing like I just thought that was the best way to handle it so I sit back down and it's clear that I've rejected his sexual right. So so the first words out of his mouth when I sit back down after going to the bathroom are You seem to be a little bit hesitant about me. Like, what is it that's causing this hesitation? And I was like, Do you really want to know? Or do you want to, like, I don't know. Do you want the. the, Do you want
1: us to have a good time?
0: (laughs) Do you, like, really want to know? And he's like, Yeah, man, tell me. And I'm like, It's not going to be comfortable to hear. And he's like, Dude, seriously, just tell me. I'm like, Okay, man, I think that you have antisocial personality disorder. I think you're literally a sociopath. And Mm -hmm. I know that this disorder is incurable. There's nothing you can do about it. You didn't ask for this. It was in all likelihood, a result of a really bad childhood. And everything that I had learned about Declan up until this point suggested that to be true. So Mm -hmm. I'm really sympathetic to him in a lot of ways, despite his bad behavior. And he immediately broke eye contact, looked down at the floor, like hunched his shoulders and he's very clearly uncomfortable. So I'm like, look, man, I can see that you're uncomfortable. I'm just gonna see myself out and we can talk about this more tomorrow, okay? And he's like, okay, sounds good. And I get up, walk out, start walking to my apartment which is only like three or four blocks away. And then I get halfway back to my apartment and I get a text from him saying, you're right. So yeah. he literally was a sociopath. And we continue being friends for a while. And I, you know, tell him everything that was wrong with what he did with the other guy and mm-hmm. how that is completely unacceptable behavior and it just can't happen again. And yeah, we stayed friends. And after the program ended, I think three of the the companies out of the eight were invited to go to London for this conference this education technology conference is a massive deal and they invited us the company that I was working for and Declan's company and one other uh, company and we're all really excited and we go to this conference and we get there a couple of days early we have some fun and then we uh, gear up for this conference and we're all staying in the same hotel because the conference is connected to our hotel. Right. And the night before the conference, I talk to my CEO and say, hey man, I'll take the first shift. Uh, you know, it's like eight or nine in the morning the next day. And after I agree to this responsibility, I go out and have a drink with Declan. Mm-hmm. And the next morning, I wake up in a panic because I see six missed calls from the the leader of the, the Intel cohort. And I answer his call because he calls again. I'm like, hey man, I'll be right there. And it's like so unconvincing because it's clearly like I fucked up. You're just
1: up. waking up, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm like, okay, man, I'll, I'll be right there. And I get dressed faster than I've ever gotten dressed before in my life. And I sprint to the elevator, sprint out the lobby, sprint all the way across this crossway to get to this conference and I show up instantly. The, the manager of the Intel cohort is like, dude, you look like shit, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm fine, I'm here, sorry I'm late. And five, not even five minutes later, the CEO comes walking up and he's like, dude, you can go. Like, just get the fuck out of here, you look terrible. I'm like, okay, fine. Like I tried to protest and it didn't work and he's just like, go get some sleep and come back. In like five hours. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. As I'm leaving, I see Declan, and he doesn't look like shit at all. And he like kind of looks at me once, chuckles to himself, and he's like, rough night, huh? And I didn't really think anything about this at the time. Right? I just thought maybe he had handled his liquor better, or he had drank more water. Like, there's so many reasons Mm -hmm. why why that happened. But over the next like six months to a year, I start piecing little things together, you know? Uh, Like, for instance, I had only had four drinks that night and blacked out after the fourth one. And I very distinctly remember that blacking out part. Like the transition from, oh, I'm totally fine to what the fuck, and and I'm out. Right. Uh, So I remember that, and I remember it happening after four drinks, and I remember right before that, I had gone to the bathroom and left my drink unattended, so I came back and... Then the next day we're at this dinner with all the Intel people. And, and somebody comes up to me, this woman says, which one of you, and she's talking to me and Declan only, which one of you were on the floor of the bar last night? And we are both like laughing, like, ha, like none of us, but clearly now looking back, she was talking to me, trying to Mm -hmm. send me like a message, like. It was you that was on the uh-huh.
2: floor, yeah.
0: floor last night and I didn't really pick up on her her like subtlety at the time but now looking right. back it's like clear as day that I was the one on the floor and I remember waking up and, and seeing this Instagram story that I had recorded like with Declan's face in it and this was like seconds before I blacked out and I hurried up and deleted it because I thought it was embarrassing. You know, mm-hmm. that I was that drunk or whatever. But yeah, several months later, I was talking to somebody who had been roofied. And he described his experience. And it was exactly like my experience in London. So I just had this, like, like, mind-blown discovery that I had been roofied that night. And it all started to make sense. But I chose not to do anything about it because... One, he and I had been so close for so long, and I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. You know, like I'd even addressed it with him and still chose to be close to him despite knowing that he had no like feelings, no empathy, no nothing. And I willingly and deliberately made that choice. So I don't feel any regret about that now, and I don't feel any, I don't know, traumatic after effects Mm -hmm. of knowing that, partially because I don't remember shit. And if Mm -hmm. I did, maybe that'd be a different story. Right. But I knew full well what had transpired that night, and my thought was like, yeah, I'd probably do that all over again. Like, I completely cut ties with him after Mm -hmm. that. And, uh, you know, he has since passed away probably because of his disorder, but he was 37 when he passed away. So I don't know for a fact, but I'm near certain that it was either overdose or suicide. You know, this guy was very conflicted. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I have very conflicting feelings about him and about the situation. But yeah, my my first reaction was like, oh, I'd probably do the same thing all over again because of how much I got out of it and because of how deliberate and willing I was to be in that situation in the first place. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just felt like sharing because I had written that out for the first time just like a couple of weeks ago because somebody that I was talking to in the DMs was like, tell me everything and spare no details. Mm -hmm. So I spared no detail wrote out like this five part story that said everything and you can find it on my blog if you want to read it but um right but yeah I I haven't shared it publicly yet because it's so personal and because I don't know if people actually want to read that or not
1: you'd be surprised (laughs) I'll tell you that much
0: yeah but uh but you're actually the first person that I've said it to out loud uh, other than like four other people, you know, I I've, I've posted on my blog and I've sent it out to my newsletter people subscribers, mm-hmm. but it just felt like after hearing your stories, this was an appropriate time to tell that one. And I'm sorry for taking up so much of no, don't be, that, but I felt like it was hyper relevant to what we were talking about.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty relevant. I think that's shit. That's a hell of a story. I mean, fuck, I can't imagine. I was very lucky to you know at least my story it's like I got to do all that in the cold sober daylight I can't imagine something like that thank you for sharing that
0: oh, no problem thanks for listening Woof. Um, <laughs> you know it's it's cathartic to get it off my chest because even though it doesn't bother me it's still something that I would like to get better about talking about
2: mm-hmm.
0: because it's something that bothers so many people and bother is like such a a small way of putting it. Like this is a big deal. And if it were any other person or any other reason, I think it would be a very traumatic experience. But like as a white man, who's never really feared for my safety in a lot of ways. Right. You would think this experience would be jarring to the extreme, but I think it's because I've never experienced that on a day-to-day basis that I handled it so, or I, I handled it in stride. I'm just like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, that happened. But I know this is not the typical. Well, I think
1: it's really important. I mean, I think that when people talk about the use of, like, date rape drugs or whatever you want to call them, knockout drugs or whatever, I think that people don't consider them being used against men. I think it's really important that we understand that they are. And I think it's, like... I'm sorry that happened to you. I mean I know that fucking counts for shit, but I mean, really, that's fucking awful. And uh I don't know. I think you're actually the only person I've ever spoken to like person to person who's ever been like drugged like that and Yikes.
0: Well you don't need to, you don't need to apologize or feel bad for me or anything. I know, but it's uh it's something can't that help but I... I'm
1: an artist. I have so much empathy. <laughs>
0: Well, I appreciate that all the same. I'm just saying, it's uh, to me it doesn't feel like so much of a sad story or a, a tragic story. It's just like a tale of caution, right? For sure. To other people, because I have since found ways to glean the same level, not quite the same level of wisdom that he imparted to me, but by talking to more smart people i can kind of crowdsource the same type of wisdom that i got from him Mm -hmm. it's just a lengthier more uh energy draining process because you know like he would tell me things that would that still to this day have completely changed my life right and it's impossible like not impossible but it's really really hard to find people with that level of intellect and be close to them right absolutely especially especially for someone like me who grew up in a really small town you know like thirteen thousand people uh Mm -hmm. going going to silicon valley and being in like in the heart of startup kingdom
2: Mm -hmm.
0: that was huge for me so uh you know i I don't regret anything and i don't want people to feel sorry for me or anything but yeah right it's uh it's a tale of caution
1: yeah absolutely i think you know it's there is something uniquely I feel like, maybe you'll feel this way, maybe you won't, like, but like wounding about like it being a mentor that does something like that to you. Because it's like, you know they always say like, don't meet your heroes, but like also, I don't know, I'm starting to think like, just don't have them, you know what I mean? But in the sense that, uh, you know, when you're young and you, you really idolize somebody who knows things that you wanna know, and you're just like, God, what I wouldn't give to be able to download your brain into mine,
0: mm-hmm. you know?
1: And then to realize that these people are people. Mm -hmm. with the same potential to be fucked up or to hurt you as you know anybody else would Mm -hmm. it's a lot it's like hard to grapple with especially when you're young you know like you don't think of i don't know i was 20 20 maybe i think when the whole thing with bill happened and i uh fuck like i still don't know how to make sense of like how wide-eyed and like naive i was about it you know Mm. it's like 20 not that young like, now I look at 24 and I'm, I'm at 24 and I'm like, look at 20. I'm like, God, you're a child. You know, there's <laughs> like such a huge difference.
2: Yeah.
0: I uh, I think you're on to something in, in not having heroes. Right. Not in the sense that you, you know, don't look up to people that inspire you or right. make you hopeful, mm-hmm. but you want to get to the point where you are that person. So you don't need to latch on to people Absolutely. so far ahead of you. Right. You know, like, like I am especially like passionate about this idea because growing up without like really good positive male role models, mm-hmm. I looked to books and movies like to find those people right. and, and basically worshipped them and even went to the extreme of like finding specific stories that I loved and taking a specific action from those stories and then implementing them in my daily life. Mm -hmm. like one was Johnny Appleseed right I thought I thought Johnny Appleseed was like a cool story of a guy who just like did something that anybody else could have done right but he's the only one that did it you know Mm -hmm. Uh, so I I took that story and rode my bicycle across the the country and planted I think 3,000 trees in total but this is what I'm talking about
2: that's amazing though
0: (laughs) thank you um but but that's exactly what I'm talking about, like where I was worshiping these right. heroes and trying so hard to incorporate some of that, you know, magic in my own life. And now right. now I, I did several other things like that, but that's so not my point right now. My point is, I'm on the other side of it now, you know, I'm a full grown man. I no longer feel the need to have those positive male role models in that sense. You know, right. like everybody needs positive role models, but like, yeah, I'm not looking for a dad anymore. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, now that I'm on the other side of it and no longer have those heroes in that sense, I think you're you're right in that we should strive to no longer have heroes. But the way but to get, be our own.
1: Yeah. But, the,
0: but to get to that point, you have to first have a ton of heroes and like steal bits and pieces of their person
1: right absolutely
0: Or their work so it's ironic because i promote this idea of like having heroes and stealing from them and incorporating their certain aspects of their work and their life into yours but it seems contradictory that i'm saying the ultimate goal is to no longer have heroes
1: right yeah, I, I think you're you're really onto something there, though, that it is sort of, like, contradictory, but it, like, is correct also. You know, like, you're right, you don't turn into a hero without learning from some heroes, which is pretty interesting. I think, for me, what I would like to impress upon people who are, like, sort of hero-laden is that you have to remember that, like, the day's gonna come when you have to be a hero, and you have to be ready for that. And, honestly, nothing really prepares you for that like you don't know who you are until you're in the arena you know it's like what's the fucking man in the arena quote i don't remember who said it
0: teddy roosevelt you know
1: thank you teddy roosevelt what a hottie but you know just sort of like the like you really don't know and you know like that was something that ken thank god i had ken with me through the whole bill thing because he was just like my champion and like my cheerleader but you know ken kept saying like you know i was like oh well the kids don't want me to do this well the students don't want me to do this And he was like listen you're the man in the arena At the end of the day, what you say goes, you're the one taking the hit. You can fucking do whatever the fuck you want. Handle this however you want. And that was something that I needed to hear at the time. And I think now about, you know, like if I were in a similar situation, how differently I would play it. And if I could go back, would I do things any differently? I don't know. Like I said, there's so many like X and Y's that I just don't know about how things would have worked out. I'm proud of the way that I did deal with it. Uh, excuse me in the sense that I just was able to deal with it at all but you know I I would stress like for young people you know like if I, I have like a couple little sister figures you know I don't have I have a younger brother but I have like little sister figures you know surrogates and I feel like what I would impress upon them like the most would be like the day is going to come where you have your bill moment you have your thing where you have to you know make a stand and you just have to know it when it comes and Try to behave in a way that you're proud of Who you are and how you acted I always say if I can just walk out of this life Feeling like I can look God in the eye And be proud of who I was And that's like all I can ever ask And you know it's true Like if you can take a hit for your fellow man Fucking take it If you can't don't you know And and definitely don't don't reach Beyond your uh, Capabilities there because you really fuck yourself up mm-hmm. You know well, okay. You yeah, you talking about male role models? I know we don't have like a shit ton of time left, but how do you feel that affected you in the long run? Because I I feel like that's an interesting thing that people don't talk about enough.
0: What uh, What specifically affected me?
1: It's like you didn't grow up with a dad, right? Am I correct in inferring that?
0: I always try to justify the the context because right. I have a dad and a stepdad. Okay. Both are still alive and both are relatively close to where I live. Neither are who I wanted to be when I grew up. Right. Neither are are terrible people. I had all of my physical needs met when I was a child. Okay. Mm -hmm. The difference was that I did not have all of my psychological and emotional needs met because I didn't get along with my stepdad at all. I saw my dad maybe, like, once a year, still to this day. And, and I no longer feel, like, distress about either of these things now.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But but growing up, it was very difficult. Oh, yeah. And um, only found, you know, like, a positive male ro- role model that I really looked up to once I was about 22, 21 or 22. So, yeah, I like I said, looked up to people that I saw in stories and movies and, and books and things like that. And I kind of had to learn on my own, how to be a good man or be a good person, you know? So yeah, that was, that was tough. And I'm really passionate about it now because I know I can help other people like shortcut that journey. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to play that role for a lot of people in similar situations. I know what that's like, and and that's why I'm so passionate about it. But also, like I came up with a lot of my own, like systems and mental models, along the way. So I have a very unique perspective on this particular problem. I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, anytime somebody I anytime I see myself in somebody around that same age, you know, like senior in high school to like. Uh, sophomore in in college, whatever, like that that age gap of transitioning from adolescence to adulthood. Yeah, it's hard. Is like my man. like that, that's, mm-hmm. that's just love <laughs> to talk about now because I know exactly how to help these people. So to answer your question, I hated it at the time,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and now I'm really grateful for it. And wow. these are. These Don't cancel each other out, they're just, uh, they're just, yeah, safe. they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I get what you're like saying. It, like, it fucking sucked, and now I can make it suck less for other people. So, I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't change a thing, I don't think. Maybe I would have wanted <laughs> to find a positive male role model sooner,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but yeah, no regrets. And I don't hold it against my parents at all because they're good people and they. Right it looked out for me in, in the best way that they knew how, yeah. but, but <clears throat> for me, it wasn't good enough because I needed more.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, I did the the Johnny Appleseed thing twice. That's um, so cute. <laughs> thank I you. just
1: hope you know how like as a woman, that's the cutest thing I've ever fucking heard in my entire life. Dudes rock.
0: Oh, thank you. Babes rule. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, uh, was really lost and just found an anchor that I could like latch onto and that was it. You know, so mm-hmm. I I started asking myself like, who are my heroes? What's something concrete that I can imitate from them? And the first one was the Johnny Appleseed thing. And people were like, why do you care so much about Johnny Appleseed? I'm like, I don't give a shit about Johnny Appleseed. What I care about is the thing that he did that I can right. also do. Like I had very little resources at the time, but I had a bicycle and uh tree like little trees okay these things were like three three to four feet tall but Uh even so, they're 30 cents a piece Uh so so like all things considered i did a lot with very little and uh, and then i got back from doing those bicycle trips and planting those trees and then my next one was uh building trying to build the world's biggest blanket fort to live out the theme of Peter Pan, right? Because at this point, uh, I'm like 24 or 25. Wait, no, around that age though. Um, and I thought it'd be fun to get like a bunch of adults together and try to build the world's biggest blanket for it and like break the Guinness Book of World Records for that. Uh, we got really close, but it didn't actually succeed. And that's not the point. Uh, but right. the next one after that was a <clears throat> haunted paintball zombie apocalypse event where people could, people could like test themselves and fight through the end of days, and uh, maybe learn something about themselves along the way. I love that. <laughs> right, it was so much fun. But, uh, but yeah, that's what I mean by by like trying to uh, learn something from your heroes and then like eventually right. become those people because. I love this line from from Austin Cleon. He says, the goal isn't to be like your heroes. It's to see like your heroes. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Because if you do things that your heroes did long enough, you start to see the way that they saw things. Right. Even if it's on a really, really small scale.
1: Oh, that's banging. Man, that's good. That's good shit. Trace. I know, right? (laughs) Mr. Brady.
0: Hey. I can't take any credit for that. That was awesome. Cleon all the way. But yeah, that's good shit.
1: Write that down real quick. (laughs) While I'm doing that, you think of something interesting to ask me.
0: What's the most interesting question you've ever been asked? (laughs) Ooh, you. Um okay i'll give you two i'll give you two questions and you get to whichever one you want to answer what's the most interesting question you've ever been asked what's the best compliment you've ever been given and why
1: the best compliment i've ever been given hands down this one's easy i was in college and uh it's kind of funny because it's like (laughs) not the 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 one that you want to hang on the wall like as far as being like quotable and cute but one of my professors Uh, and and another student and I were talking about another student that we knew who was um, sort of uh, fallen off the boat in the sense that uh, she didn't have the same like chutzpah for doing um, art anymore and we were kind of lamenting this and this other student was like yeah well look how much she's been through like look look what this department has put her through and the professor pointed at me and he said, well, look at this bitch. He said, she's like a cockroach. He said, you can't kill her. You just can't kill her. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> I was like, that is a fantastic compliment. Yeah. Man. Like, does can, it get I any better than that?
0: I can picture, you know, like you're, you're down <laughs> and out. You're like going through hell. You're, you're like on your I'm last. I'm so play.
1: haggard. Yeah. So haggard.
0: <laughs> and you don't have the energy to go on and then you remember i'm a fucking cockroach Mm. right like that's the kind of compliment that keeps you going in really dark times
1: oh yeah that's the kind of person that like it's nice to have already received it but like that's the kind of thing that i hold up here that i want to i want to hit that every day you know because uh i grew up like pretty poor um and uh, certainly no family connections of any kind to uh, help me along. And uh, it is a lot easier to be an artist if you've got rich parents. Mm-hmm. Much fucking easier. You know, like, everything I've ever gotten or every step I've ever taken in a certain direction was always... It was my own work. It was my own blood, sweat, and tears. And it's not because my parents don't want to help. They would love to. They just can't.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so, you know, to have, like, that kind of, like, to bear that kind of sigil... That feels really good because it's like, okay, I don't need those things. Like, Mm. it's all here. You know, that feels really good.
0: Damn straight.
1: (laughs) You know. Most interesting question I've ever been asked is like really hard. Like. Man, oh man. I don't know. I just don't know. I'll just give you Sorry, I don't know. <laughs>
0: hey, I don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer. Hmm. I'm just I'm just waiting to see if there's a a, a moment nope. of lightning strike. Okay.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think I I really don't think I've got anything there. I will say if there's I don't know, maybe I'll just impart a wisdom. I feel like something somebody said the other day on Twitter. I don't remember what it was, but it it made me think of this and I I was going to post it. And then I didn't for whatever fucking reason, probably because I forgot about it. But I was thinking about, uh, you know, like self-help, personal growth, whatever. And I feel like I got a head start because I was bullied really badly as a kid. (laughs) Uh, Not entirely undeservedly. I might add, I was kind of sort of a fucking weirdo, you know? And uh, I feel like, that was such a gift in retrospect because like I did spend years taking it on my mother god bless her soul um you know but at the same time I also I remember there was a point in time where I thought I was like in elementary school it was, it was pretty bad in elementary school worse in junior high but it was still pretty bad in elementary school and I remember thinking uh well I can play their game I can do this and I did it and I didn't work I'd already been Uh, branded like an outsider or like a whatever I was not going to ever get back into their good graces no matter what I did and every step I took seemed to be wrong anyway so I was like okay well I've tried to play their game and I can't do it and I've got to figure out like who and how I want to be which is funny because like you don't think about kids asking themselves questions like this but they do Mm -hmm. you know kids really do ask themselves stuff like this Mm -hmm. and I remember thinking okay well I can make myself into a person that I like and that was such a gift to get at like seven years old, seven or eight, you know, because I figured it out. I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to do the things that I like, and I'm going to catch hell for it. And I'm going to be embarrassed. And it's not even like, pfft. it took me years to come up with the, and fuck you attitude. You know what I mean? Like that part came a long time later, you know, cause I did just get bullied and it just hurt my feelings and whatever. Um, but, you know, like, I turn myself into a person that I actually really like. Mm-hmm. Like, I like to hang out with myself. I like to be alone. I like to do, I have, like, like people talk about, like, having guilty pleasures. I don't have guilty pleasures. I just have pleasures. I just do shit that I like to do. You know what I mean? And it's, that sounds, like, so stupid and, like, basic. But I feel like I know so many people who don't do the things that they like for stupid reasons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was sort of, like, a really weirdly, like, young individual in the sense that I was already turning myself into who I wanted to be. And then when I got around junior high was horrendous because I was poor. It was the 08 recession and I went to the rich junior high. So you can imagine what that was like for me. And I was also, listen to me, I can't stress this enough, a hideous adolescent, hideous, which, you know, is fine. It builds character, (laughs) you know, And then when I got to high school, I sort of had turned myself into this person that I really liked. I did whatever I wanted and to hell with the rest of everybody. And then suddenly I was popular and I was like, I had lots of friends. I did lots, I did whatever I wanted all the time. It was like, eh, whatever. And I, I, you know, I talked to my friends that I was really close to during this time. And it's so funny that like internally I was still racked with like insecurity I was still nervous about like how I appeared to other people or whatever. My friends had no idea. They were like, Oh yeah, you just, we always thought you were just like doing your thing. It never mattered or whatever. I was like, Oh no, I was, I was eat up inside, but it's so funny. You know, like I, I think if I was like a teacher and I was dealing with high schoolers, like how much you would like, as an adult looking at like a 16 year old, like how much you would understand about them. They don't even understand about themselves, you know? And I'm, I'm so grateful for, I had really fantastic teachers in high school. I went to a really banging. I had a really awesome high school experience. I went to school in the hood, wherever, like we had the largest, we were the most diverse ethnically, uh, school in the state and also the most diverse socio socioeconom- socioeconomically. so we had kids who were like homeless living in cars and we had kids who lived in mansions in the same classes okay. our valedictorian was a-, a girl who was president of like everything and also worked a part-time job to support her family you know i mean it was just it was great and the school had no cliques in the sense that i mean we had cliques but it wasn't weird for you to be a part of multiple ones like i had friends from every class i was in i had friends from you know different groups and idea like clubs or whatever and it wasn't weird Mm -hmm. and so high school was really like my oyster you know like and I enjoyed my time there a lot and learned a lot about myself and other people and man go to school in the hood it's a bang up experience it was fantastic and you know I'm really grateful for that and I think if I hadn't been so bullied and hadn't had such a horrible time socially in school up until that point I wouldn't have realized what a gift it was at the time but I was pretty cognizant of it but I had a bunch of teachers who were just like fantastic people to be around young people and I I'm extremely grateful for that
0: seems to me all all of my all of the worst times of my life simultaneously the best times in my life yep you know i are doing it
1: right they will be yeah
0: yeah i mean if you learn something from it like that makes sense
1: right i thought i was gonna burp i didn't do it <laughs> sorry Well, thank you're you like start... hi come on my podcast i'm like sure i'll burp the whole time
0: <laughs> perfect <laughs> well thank you so much for uh coming on i appreciate your time and i appreciate you know you taking the time to to meet me face to face because i know we've talked a lot elsewhere yeah. but it. it's always good to, to see people and you know see how they act in real life you know, cause oh yeah there's a lot am, lost i have
1: okay this is an interesting question for you uh-huh. that somebody asked me the other day and i was like i don't actually i don't think i could self-report on this but do you, how different am am i what you expected or not
0: Just about, yeah.
1: Okay. (laughs) Somebody was like, how much of your Twitter persona do you think is really you? I was like, I think I'm pretty much the same. And, uh, you know, some people report back that, some people not.
0: I think unless you're posting, like, all the wrong things and all the wrong messages, you at least get the essence, right?
1: Yeah, I agree. And that's
0: what translates into real life. You know, like, Mm -hmm. you obviously can't encapsulate all that you are in 280 characters, no matter how many times you try. right? Even a long ass thread, like mm-hmm. you're only gonna get bits and pieces here and there. But over mm-hmm. time, each tweet or each blog post or whatever, acts as a new data point, And you have to reconfigure your idea of this person based on that right. new data. Not the other way around. you're like not trying to make them conform. you're you're readjusting your own idea. So I think I had a pretty good idea of um, your values, your uh, your attitude based on what I've read. Um, but yeah, obviously I, I had no idea what you would be like unless we actually like got on this <laughs> call uh what about you did you uh you're much handsomer in person oh really wait what is that yes
1: (laughs) you're just handsome well
0: thank you i appreciate that
1: you're welcome and i think you're uh no i think you're. yeah besides that you're really similar not that you're not handsome on twitter but i just (laughs) feel like you you can tell so much more about somebody when they're speaking and moving and you know yada 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 in a way that like you said you just can't 280 characters and i like you you're great
0: well, thank you. I appreciate that. The feelings mutual, as I've said. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I haven't been like as active on Twitter as I want to be, so mm-hmm. I'm glad. I'm glad. Like, even though I'm spending very, very little time on there, I'm at least presenting myself in a way that's authentic to me. Yeah. And I at least I hope that's the case, and I hope other people feel that way too. But anyway, it was a pleasure meeting you, and I'll let you go. Okay. But before before we depart for the night do you have anything that you want to share promote whatever you want to say the 60 seconds is all yours
1: okay i want to thank first of all we should thank nips for connecting us at knips k-n-i-p-p-s for connecting us because he's great he's one of my best twitter friends he's such a gift secondly i'm wearing oh god how do i do this i'm wearing a shirt from tiny trashling i'm a big fan of their work It says Barbie Dream Dumpster. Is that iconic or what?
2: Perfect. Is that
1: iconic or what? Go on, Uh, Yeah, they sent me this t-shirt and a pair of earrings that I'm going to plug also tomorrow on Twitter. But everybody should check her out. She's at Tiny Trashling on Twitter. And they're fantastic work. It's so good. I'm currently writing a novel, so look out for that. You should follow me on Twitter. I'm Gas Station Barbie at Darbra Dawn, like Barbara, but Darbra. (laughs) ha 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 I'm very very funny I need to change that it's like nobody can ever tell what it is and yeah everybody should look out for your fellow man that's it
0: perfect alright well thank you Darby and I will talk to you soon
1: thank you Trace bye bye
0: have a good one bye